So we're talking about um, Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's about getting the gospel right. And I guess it means there's a suspicion that we've got the gospel wrong. Uh, or we might have kind of misunderstood it or, or mispracticed it. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Here's a map. We're talking, all this is happening down here in this right-hand corner in what you can probably just about see uh, is Turkey uh, today on that map. Well, in Paul's day, it was this. It was the Roman provinces of Asia and Galatia uh, and various others. So that lump there is that same sticky-out bit of Turkey that you saw on the previous map. Paul was previously based at this church in Antioch on the right. And notice there are two. We call this Syrian Antioch. We call that one Pisidian Antioch because of where they're based. And on his first missionary journey, Paul uh, planted at least these four churches. Um, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby in, in Galatia. And we're now uh, a matter of just a very few years later um, and things are starting to go wrong. Some teachers, in inverted commas, well, they are teachers, but whether they're good teachers or bad teachers, we're finding out, have come from Jerusalem um, to Paul's young church plants. And they're throwing them into confusion. And so Paul writes to the Galatians what we might call a pretty frank letter. I'm kind of stopping short of calling it a rude letter, but it's by the standards of the day, it's not far off. As we saw last week, Paul gets into things right from the start to help them get the gospel straight. He tells them to check their authority. Check their authority. Where has this gospel come from? Which for us means, if there are questions about the gospel, go back to the Bible. Go back to the Bible, go back to the word of God. That was the first thing he told them. The second thing he told them was keep hold of grace, which means remember, you are powerless to save yourselves, or to do anything of spiritual value without God's help and intervention. And the third thing was, don't be a people pleaser. They were drifting off because they wanted to please these people who'd come from Jerusalem, which for us means, don't be a people pleaser. Don't be drawn away because some people have come in uh, teaching something which you maybe think is not right, but you want to please them. You want to look good in their eyes. And we're going to read in a moment that Paul continues now by drawing on his personal uh, experience, by his, his own life story. But it'll help us before we get there um, to understand uh, maybe what these uh, dodgy preachers uh, have been saying. And they're saying something like this. They're, they're saying to the churches in Galatia, the official gospel comes from the apostles in Jerusalem. That's the first thing they're saying. The uh, official story comes from Jerusalem. They say, any authority Paul has uh, comes from them. And they say, if you remember, they're probably saying, if you remember, he went up to Jerusalem just after his conversion uh, to get commissioned. That's what they're implying. But now they're saying he's gone off church planting uh, amongst the non-Jews. Now he's away from this Jewish context. He's leaving out bits of the gospel. That's what they're uh, implying. And we are here from Jerusalem, they're saying, to put you straight and put the missing bits back. And that leaves Paul in a bit of a kind of catch-22 situation. Because on the one hand, he needs to say, I didn't get the gospel from Jerusalem. I got it independently by direct revelation. 
And yet on the other hand, he needs to say, but nevertheless, it's still the same gospel um, that they have in, in Jerusalem. And that leads Paul into our reading today. So let's pick it up at um, chapter 1, um, verse 11. Paul says this. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not from human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. As we saw last week, he says, I've, I've received this by direct revelation. I didn't get it from anybody else, least of all Jerusalem. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to uh, consult any human being. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went into Arabia. And then later I came back to Damascus. You can go back and read that in Acts. And then, and only after three years, did I go up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas. That's Peter. Stayed with him 15 days. And I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And I assure you before God, the one I'm writing you is no lie. So only after three years that I went up there. And then I only saw Peter and James. And then he says, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God with gossiping. And then, only then, after 14 years, and this is probably another 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, more of that later, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was as a Greek. This was the big issue circumcision did. Christians need to be Jews first that they need to get circumcised. And Paul says, I went up, not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised. And he said, the matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. And we didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. That's interesting, isn't it? Because that's precisely what these teachers are now wanting to do in Galatia. They're wanting to add to the message. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I'd been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter, who was at work, uh, sorry, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. So they just recognized that Paul is going to non-Jews and, and Peter is going to Jews. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. 
and they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I've been eager to do all along. And we'll just read a little bit more. When Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, so Peter's now, excuse me, Peter's doing the return visit. He's going now from um, Jerusalem to Antioch. I opposed him face to face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Uh, But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. And the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So quite a chunk, but we'll get through it quickly today. But I want us then just to pick through Paul's life in a couple of chunks and, and just work out what are the implications for us um, for getting the gospel right. Um, and because getting the gospel right is kind of getting a bit of a mouthful and it's too big to go on the PowerPoint, um, I've just summarized it down to, to GTGR. Okay, so when you see GTGR on the slides, that means get, get, getting the gospel right. We're going to start with Paul's conversion. What does, what does Paul say about himself, about his previous life? He was, he was top of the pile. He was pretty much near the, the top of the religious pile. He was intensely religious. He was violently religious. He was preeminently religious. But what happened? He said, then God revealed Jesus in me. And it's a, it's a strange term of, turn of phrase, isn't it? God revealed Christ um, in me. Because we know God revealed Jesus to him. It's a famous... Uh, Damascus Road conversion, uh, we see from Acts 9. But the but great revelation to Paul and, and to us, that God reveals to us, is that uh, through grace, Christ can come and live in us by his Holy Spirit. And then when Christ comes uh, and lives in us, then and only then um, can other people uh, see Christ through us. <coughs> So Paul says, God revealed Christ to me. And that revelation of Christ turned him upside down. Turned him upside down. It turned him from a man who was preaching self-righteousness to Jews to a man who was preaching grace to Gentiles. What an amazing turnaround. It just turns him upside down. And he discovers along the way that even though he's only just come to know Christ, uh, that God has had a plan uh, for him from the womb. It's a lovely thing. He says, when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb, called me by grace. I don't know whether you found that as a Christian, that um, you find that when you come to Christ, God is able to use all kinds of things that were there in your life before. God has seen you before time and before the womb. 
um, uh, and will use what's there. So Paul, his mind, his religious training, they're all going to have a use once his life has been turned upside down. So GTGR, getting the gospel right. Um, First thing, starting point, I guess, is to say that this revelation of Christ turns you upside down. So the gospel comes at some point in in your life as as a revelation to you. So, um, Paul, you think back on on, on the Damascus Road. He sees the risen Jesus um, as Lord. At some point, the gospel comes as as revelation to you, and you see Jesus uh, for who he is. You see him as God, and because he is God, you see that he needs to be um, Lord of your own life, and you see that that's not what you've been doing. Uh, There comes that point. Um, uh, and for those who submit to him, bow the knee, say, yes, you are Lord, uh, he forgives them. Forgives them on the basis, of course, of what's been done on, on the cross. And he then fills them with the Holy Spirit and, and he then uh, commissions them. I think you can probably pick all of those out of that uh, little extract from Acts 9 there. And when you trust that message, I, I mean, I trust that's happened. You know, revelation has come to you uh, at some point. It might have been sudden, it might have smacked you in the face. Um, like he did with Paul. Uh, my brother-in-law says, you know, he, he, he met Jesus face to face as he would meet you or I. It happens occasionally. But I guess for you it probably happened through somebody speaking the words, the good news of, of, of the gospel to you. And you saw suddenly Christ uh, as God um, and, and as Lord. And you said to him, sorry, uh, haven't, uh, as Lord, please forgive me, please uh, may that payment on the cross pay for me today, uh, once and for all. Please send your Holy Spirit into my life that uh, I might be made new, that I might know Christ uh, on the inside. When that revelation comes, it's a revelation of Christ to you. Uh, then Christ comes in you, and then there's a revelation of Christ um, through you. And I trust then that started to turn life upside down should be turning life upside down. And what you will have discovered, I hope you've discovered, is is that good works count for nothing as a way of getting right with God. We cannot make this argument, as some people do, that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Because it makes no sense in the light of this passage that we've just read. However intensely you believe it, or violently you practice it, or preeminently you rise by it, Paul will say, as he says in Philippians, that that stuff is rubbish. It is absolute rubbish. I'm really tempted to use a rude word, but it wouldn't be very good, would it? Uh, But Paul uses a rude word in Philippians. He says that stuff's rubbish in terms of getting you right with God. No one is so good that they don't need the grace of the gospel. So one of the places it's going to turn you upside down is in this place of justification. You're going to stop trying to justify yourself because you can't. You're going to be justified by grace through faith. So the gospel calls us out of religion in that sense, in the sense that Paul talks about it um, in this passage. It calls us out of salvation by good works. But it also calls us out of irreligion. It also calls us out of bad behaviour. Paul knows he's a baddie, an evil man, and his beliefs have led him into violence and, ki- uh, and killing. So no one, is so no one is so good they don't need the grace of the gospel. No one is so bad that they can't receive 
the grace of the gospel. If we're going to get the gospel right, you're going to have to realize along the way that these good works are rubbish. Uh, and then we, uh, Paul goes on to his early Christian life. Um, and, and really he does that, and I think we've made that clear already, because he wants to counter these accusations from the false teachers. Um, they're saying the official gospel uh, comes from the apostles in Jerusalem, and he's saying, no, it, comes, it came to me too. It came by direct revelation. I didn't go up to Jerusalem. I went into Arabia. Later I went back to Damascus. And, and they say, uh, any authority Paul has comes from Jerusalem. He says, not true. He says, I only went once in 17 years. Uh, I went after three years. And then only briefly. And then I went to Syria and Cilicia, and I was personally unknown to Judea. And only after uh, 14 years did I, did I go back up. And they say he's leaving bits of the gospel out. He's left out this bit. They must do circumcision. They must do the food laws, uh, the Jewish food laws. They must do the special days. They say he's leaving bits of the gospel out. Paul says, no, you are adding bits in. Get it on good authority. Go back to scripture. Work out what are human traditions. So that bit we've covered. But there does come a time when Paul makes a, an, an official visit, as it were, to Jerusalem. But, but not until more, probably a decade and a half um, uh, have passed since his conversion. He, he goes, he says, in response to um, a revelation. Now, this is probably an, an occasion uh, in the Antioch church when a prophet called Agabus um, stood up and, and says there's going to be a severe famine uh, across the Roman world. So the Antioch church takes up an offering um, because the Judean churches are suffering particularly and, and they send it off with Barnabas and Paul. So this is probably the reason um, Paul went up to Jerusalem. He, he's taking this offering. But also he goes up because he's been disturbed. Their church has been disturbed by false believers. And he wants to make sure that he and the Jerusalem apostles are on the same page. Takes Titus with him. I think that's interesting. I think that's a little bit of gentle provocation. Let's have a little bit of a case study. Um, let me take Titus. He's a Gentile. He, he's not circumcised. And let's see what they say. But they don't say anything because they recognize he doesn't need um, to be circumcised. And Paul goes up, he says, because otherwise his message is in vain. If, if the churches are, are pulling in different directions over something as fundamental like this, then this young Church of Christ has already been torpedoed by division. What does he find? The Jerusalem apostles add nothing, he says. They don't require Titus to be circumcised. They do recognize that Paul has a different mission field, which is interesting. Um, they shake hands in fellowship, uh, and they agree to remember the poor. And I think there's a chunk of stuff that we can learn about doing churches together. If we're going to get the gospel right, then we have to do churches together in a sensible kind of way. And I want to think of it like this. It's fundamental that churches uh, of genuine believers should have fellowship in Christ as far as possible. It's the essence of Jesus' prayer in John 17. Because if churches pull in opposite directions, then their labor is in vain and, and, they, and they just undermine one another. But what is Paul's response as he goes to, to, to Jerusalem, he's not prepared to compromise the gospel as it has been revealed to him at all. And we have no more liberty than Paul to compromise the gospel for the sake of unity. Can't have unity just by bypassing or ignoring 
um, truths and unbeliefs. It's just wishful thinking. But interestingly, they do notice that a division of labor or, or a calling to different mission fields is, is a very sensible and practical thing. Different churches have, have different strengths. They reach different areas. Um, they may even go to different groups of people. Um, if you go down to Luton, I, I kind of go past um, the, the Urban Saints building, and they have at least two, if not three, kind of congregations meeting there. It always makes me scratch my head a bit. I think one of them is Brazilian, and one of them you know, is, is, is some other ethnicity. And at one level, I think, well, maybe that's just good. You know, if you get a church that's really good at reaching out into Brazilians, all well and good. It seems a bit of a shame that they can't all kind of meet together and, and do the same thing. But there are times when it's just sensible to say, well, we reached, you know, we're the church in Staines, we reached Staines, they're the church over there, and they reach Egham, or whatever it might be. Though I do wonder why churches together meetings never have the, the hard conversations. I think it's really interesting. Paul thinks there might be a division. And what does he do? He gets up and travels. He goes miles and miles with the deliberate intention of opening up the hard conversation. Do we believe the same thing? It's just basic, isn't it, that you would ask that question. Do we believe the same thing? So unity is essential, compromise is unacceptable, and division of labor is practical. Paul is not left anything essential out of his gospel, but he has, what he has left out is anything that might get in the way of reaching the people who are in his mission field, and he will not let anything be added, especially if anything added is going to get in the way of reaching the people he wants to reach. The gospel of grace is complete. It doesn't need things added. The gospel of grace, as revealed to Paul, uh, which we have written down uh, most clearly in, say, Galatians and Romans, is, is complete and it, it does not need things added. And I, uh, I want you to picture it like this, and I'm indebted to Christopher Ashe for this. Just imagine yourself going to, going to the National Gallery. Okay, so you wander off to Trafalgar Square, and you stand in front of, say, a Thomas Gainsborough picture like this. How's that? Oh, that's okay. We can see that, okay. It's a masterpiece, kind of early painting, okay. And you, and you walk up to the painting, and you get your pencil crayons out while nobody's looking. Or, you get, or maybe you get somebody to kind of d- distract, you, you know, distract the attendance. And you think, well, I think, that, I think her skirt's a bit plain. I think we'll just have a flower. You know, I'll just draw a little flower there. That's, that's better. Uh, and then you think, actually, this is a bit, that's a bit empty. We'll have a flower there, and we'll have a flower there, and, um, uh, and then actually, I think well, I'll have a couple of birds in the sky. There we go. In my best drawing. Have you added to the picture? Well, yes, in one sense. But actually, you've taken something away. You've taken something away of, of its glory and its completeness as it was designed to be uh, by Gainsborough as himself. If you add uh, things to the gospel... Uh, you've taken away uh, from what the creator uh, in, intended it to be. So when you go down to churches together, which I guess you don't, but I might, um, this is what you do. You have to ask what other people believe. Do we believe the same things? So we find out, do we believe the same things? That's the next little bit. And then you ask them about those extra things that they do that are different from you. And you ask them this question. 
Are those things necessary for salvation? Or are they just things, or are they just part of the way you do things so that you can reach the people God has, has called you to? And if they say they are necessary to salvation, they are things above and beyond the basic gospel um, as written and communicated to us by Paul, um, then actually they have lost the gospel. And they're not people who can have unity with I think I know what Paul would say. Don't you? Well, let's move on. So, although the apostles have all agreed then, they've agreed on this gospel, this, this plain, simple gospel. By the time Peter, Cephas, makes the return visit, he's felt the pressure of, of the circumcision group, which is this group insisting that Christians need to be Jews first, and he's stopped sitting down to eat with Gentiles. I don't know whether that means he's eating in a corner on his own. It probably doesn't. But he's... <coughs> But he's stopped eating with the Gentiles, and he wants to look good in James' eye. If that's James, you can understand. It might be. Somebody's... So Peter makes his uh, basic mistake, is if not practicing what he preaches, not holding on to the implications of the gospel um, when he puts it into practice. So if we're going to get the gospel right, the next thing to do is practice what you preach. I think it's a very helpful observation. I can't remember who made it. Um, but somebody once observed that um, errors come into our practice before they come into our theology, if I can have that next bit in. We, we, we do things wrong before we believe wrong things. So there's a whole pressure, of, for example, uh, in, in society to, to, to say that homosexuality is, is, um, is okay. Um, uh, and because it seems un- un- unreasonable, unfeasible for our young people not to go along with that, we, we kind of change our theology. Um, we do things wrong. We slip up in our behavior before we slip up in our, uh, in our theology. So uh, Peter knows what the right thing is, um, but he's struggled un- under the pressure of looking good in other people's eyes um, uh, to-, to do the right thing. So I think we have to ask ourselves... Sorry, that's next on the slide, and I've missed some dots out. The things, the things that we do, things that we do as a church, some, just on occasion you have to sit down and think, the things that we do, are they, are they essential for salvation? Or are they things that we do to reach the, the people God has called us to reach? And if they're not either of those, then they're probably quite good, good things not to do. And to check our consciences. Check your conscience again and again. Who are you trying to please? Conscience is a sensitive instrument. I don't know what that is. I was quite intrigued. found that picture online. You can tell me later on. Conscience is a kind of sensitive instrument which, which tests what, what you're doing against um, what you're believing or is testing what you're believing against uh, what, what Scripture says. It's a, it's a, com- uh, a comparer thing. Um, is conscious. Can we open a window? I'm just concerned over there. Um, just concerned for Ruth. Can you open the window? Just do. But the conscience is. But the thing is, it's um, every time. Every time you ignore your conscience, the gain turns down. 
Every time you ignore it, it becomes a less sensitive instrument. Every time you ignore your conscience, it, it gets less able to discriminate. And that ends up all the way down the line in a hardened conscience. That's another story. We could go on that for a while. So if you're going to get the gospel right, we have to think about why we're doing what we're doing. Are we doing it to please somebody? Or are we doing it because it's essential to salvation? Or are we doing it because we want to reach people and it helps us reach people? But by now you might be thinking, you know, getting the gospel right, Nick, why, why bother? Why do I need to, to get the gospel right? Are you simply trying to make me into some kind of gospel technician? Okay. Who kind of understands the switches and the dials uh, and the formulae and, and you just, you know, you want me to be able to reel it off and um, are you trying to turn me into some kind of theologian? All this getting the gospel right? No, I'm trying to make you happy. Okay. Not trying to make you a technician. I am actually trying to make you happy. Paul says to, to the Galatians, we who are Jews by birth know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Ooh. See, justification is, is being put right with God. And being right with God is where love and joy and peace are. It's where all the good things in life are. It's being right with God. And there is nothing as miserable as a Christian trying to justify themselves. And there is no one as joyful as someone who knows they were due a great downfall and they've escaped. There's only these two ways. You either try and justify yourself uh, by what you do, as if you could get right with God by things that you do, you can't. Or you can be justified by grace through faith. And so I want you to test a theory with me um, over the coming weeks. Okay? And this is my theory. I want you to have a look, good look inside and ask, what is driving my misery? Okay? What is driving my misery? And I know there are all kinds of circumstances that may, uh, and, and all kinds of bad things have, have, may have happened to you. So I'm particularly thinking if you're kind of in a, you know, you've been in some kind of long-term um, kind of misery. And I have this suspicion that self-justification is lurking there, maybe not causing it, but at the very least making it worse. So are you battling with sin and you kind of having a real frustration you can't get on top of some, something that uh, besetting you. See, self-justification is, is sitting there telling you that if you just try harder, you'll sort it. Self-justification is telling you it's in your hands and you can do it and you can sort it and it's not true. Or maybe, you know, you've lived through hard circumstances or of one kind or another. Self-justification is sitting there telling you that you deserve better. When, of course, you don't. Or maybe it's kind of fractious relationships. And self-justification is there telling you, of course, that you're in the right all the time. I suspect 
that self-justification is lurking around the dark places of life, making you miserable. Of course, it's not simply about misery and happiness, about glorifying the Lord, isn't it? But I suspect that self-justification is there making you miserable. Is there an antidote? Yeah, I think there is. And this is the other part of my theory, which, which needs testing. I, I think the other part of the antidote, or I think the antidote is to delight yourself in the Lord. Sorry, I, I mean, I didn't know what... It's a happy elephant, but there you go. It's, um, I want you to delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 34 says, um, take delight in the Lord and he will give you um, the desires uh, of, of your heart. Now, that's a big promise, whichever way you take it. Delight yourself, uh, delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart, which either means he'll give you, what you the things that are in your heart that you desire, or it means that he'll change the desires that are in your heart. Um, but either way, um, it, it, it's a big promise. I want you to test a theory with me in the, in the coming weeks and, and see whether underneath your misery there isn't self-justification lurking somewhere. And I want you to kind of just uh, inject the antidote which is to delight in the Lord. I haven't got time to give you ways of practicing that, but maybe just as you look at different situations, just look at God, at who he is. Uh, look at Jesus, uh, what he's done for you. Remember that the Holy Spirit is within you and you're forgiven and take delight in the Lord.